Today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This, te this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may, they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is today's word, um, the Lord's word. Hi, New Hope. Uh, it really is good to see all of you and to uh, open up God's word with you. From Titus, before we do that, I'm going to invite you to, to pray with me. Let's ask God for help, shall we? Our Father, you've provided us with truth, inscripturated and preserved and handed down for us, and yet we confess that apart from the work of your Spirit, we cannot understand the truth, nor can we believe the truth. We need your help. And so we pray that you would give us that help today. And we ask that your truth would resonate in our hearts, that it would ring forth as true, and that we would respond in faith. As for me, Lord, I ask that you'd grant me clarity of mind and, and concision of speech and, and conviction of, of heart as I seek to deliver your word to these folks who you love so deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When uh, we started the, this, this study in the book of Titus just recently, and today we're coming, to, uh, we're coming to, to verse 10. But as we do that, I want to I suggest something to you that perhaps is just an obvious fact to you. What you believe matters deeply. What you believe matters deeply. What you believe will shape the way that you live, what you believe will shape your expectations, your hopes, your desires, your decisions. What you believe will shape your outlook. It will shape your self-image, that is, how you view yourself. What you believe matters deeply. I wonder if you'd agree with me. I trust that most, if not all, of you would agree. But here's where things get messy for us as humans. We've seen this over the past couple of weeks. We've observed that sometimes there, there's a discrepancy between what we believe and the decisions that we make. In other words, there is a gap at times between our stated beliefs and our lives. The way we live doesn't always align with what we believe, in other words. For instance, I might believe, as I do, that it's important to take care of one's physical well-being. God has given us bodies, and it's our responsibility to care for them. And part of that is exercising regularly. I believe that. 
but I don't exercise regularly. Why? Why? Is it because I really don't believe what I say I believe? Am I lying when I say that I believe that it's important to take care of your physical well-being and the exercise is an important part of that? I don't think I'm lying. Probably not. It may be because there are deeper, deeper-seated, unspoken beliefs at play in my life that conflict with my stated belief. Like, for instance, the belief that I'm too busy to exercise regularly, or the belief that I can always start tomorrow. You see, those beliefs, they're not stated. I don't often articulate that. They're unstated beliefs that reside deep in my mind, and they undermine the belief that exercise is important and should be a part of everyone's life. I wonder if you can relate to that kind of inner dissonance where deeper-seated beliefs undermine and conflict with your stated beliefs. Here's another example. You believe that God wants you to spend time praying and reading his word each day. You believe that's a big part of being a follower of Jesus. It's, it's talking to him, and it's hearing from him regularly. That's your real stated belief. But at the same time, you might believe that if you don't pray or read your Bible today, it probably won't make much of a difference. You believe, practically speaking, that you'll be fine if you don't speak to God and listen to him speaking to you. You see what's going on there. It's the same dynamic I described with regard to myself and physical exercise. Let me give you yet another example that maybe goes a little bit deeper. Let's say you believe that God is real and good and that you are his beloved child through faith in Jesus Christ. He loves you, accepts you, has forgiven you, and delights in you. You believe that. That's a real stated belief on your part, let's say. But at the same time, though, there may be these other unstated beliefs that are influencing you, that are actually undermining your belief in who God is and who he says that you are. Like the deep-seated, subtle belief that you need certain people to like you. And if they don't like you, then you can't be happy. Or the deep-seated belief that you need approval. You need the affection and the acceptance of fill-in-the-blank, that person. And functionally speaking, in the moments that matter, that unacknowledged belief, belief in lies, I might add, can influence your emotions and your decisions much more powerfully than the stated belief in who God is and who he says you are. In fact, in those moments, getting approval or being liked matters a whole lot more than the fact that God loves you and accepts you fully in Christ. Such is the complexity of the human mind. You see, we can believe the truth and still operate on the basis of lies. We can believe the truth and still operate on the basis of lies. And this, to some degree, is likely what was happening in Crete, in the churches that Paul is writing about here in this letter to his partner, Titus. The people in those churches had heard and believed the gospel. That is, they had heard and believed the very good news of God's plan to redeem this broken, sin-cursed world. 
and to rescue everyone who believes in his son, Jesus, who died and who rose again and who will one day return to rule as king over a renewed and perfect creation. They had embraced that truth, but they were also, to one degree or another, they were hearing and believing lies. And to one degree or another, those lies that they were hearing and believing were undermining the truth of the gospel that they had embraced. For some of those folks, those lies were influencing them more powerfully and more practically and functionally than the truth was influencing them. And it was leading to messed up lives. It was leading to messed up households and messed up churches. And that is why it's so important for us to beware of lies. It's why it's so important for us to identify lies, name them as lies, and reject them. That's why it's so important for us to keep restating the truth and keep returning to the truth, specifically the truth of the gospel. It's hard work to keep doing that, isn't it, in your own life, to, to see those lies, identify them, name them for what they are and reject them, and keep going back to what you know is true, what God says. It's very hard work to do that. It's necessary work, though, at the personal level, but it's also necessary at the corporate level. That is, as a church, we need to name lies for what they are and restate and reaffirm our trust in the truth again and again and again. So today we're looking at this next section of the letter to Titus. It's chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. And there's three points that I hope will help us to understand what the writer is saying here. And here are those three points. The first one is the threat of lies. The second one is that lies accord with ungodliness. And the third one is that the only right response to lies is truth. I hope those points will make sense as I open them up a little bit. But the first one is the threat of lies. We want to see how lies were threatening this, uh, were threatening this church. The Apostle Paul instructs his partner and protege Titus to defend the truth in these churches. How should he do that? Well, last week we saw that the Apostle Paul starts the, the real body, like the real meat of this letter. It starts in verse 5 where T Paul tells Titus this. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and oppose, or in appoint, I should say, elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul says, this is what your job is to do. Put things in order. There's a mess. Straighten out this mess and put elders in place. And after telling Titus that, he goes on to tell him what elders should look like. And elders, by the way, are leaders in the church. They are pastors or overseers leaders in the church, Paul says, here's what those elders must look like. Namely, and we saw this last week, they need to have exemplary character and exemplary conduct. And, he goes on to say, they must be committed to the truth of the gospel. They need to know the truth of the gospel and believe the truth of the gospel and hold on to it tight. And then Paul explains why that's so important. Look with me at the text of verse 9. He, that is any potential elder, must hold firm to the trust Worthy word as taught. That is the trustworthy word of the gospel, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Two things the elder needs to do instruct in the teach the gospel, and call out those who are teaching contrary to the gospel. 
teach the truth and defend the truth of God's plan to redeem this broken, sin-cursed world and to rescue everyone who believes in Jesus, his son, who died and rose again and will one day return to rule as king over a renewed creation where justice and righteousness will reign. The job of the elder is to teach that, defend that, and to teach all the implications of that gospel as well. And then, as we come to today's section, here's what we see. Paul explains why it's so vital for leaders in the church to do that teaching and to do that correcting. Here's why it matters. Verse 10. For, or because, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. See what's going on here in Crete. There were people who were actively communicating lies. Paul says they were insubordinate. That means they were not submitting to the truth of the gospel. They were not submitting to the authoritative word of God that had been taught by Paul and by Titus. And, what, and he says what they were teaching was, was empty talk. It was useless. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, they were misleading. They were deceiving people. And he says there were many of them, many such people, he says. And, 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 and perhaps they were inside the church. Maybe they were influencing from outside the church. We don't know exactly, but we know that they were affecting the, 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 the church, the congregation. And Paul spotlights specifically this one group, he says, especially those of the circumcision party, which could mean one of two things. Maybe you've heard that term, the circumcision party. It's something Paul uses in other books. But for one thing, we know that it means Jewish people. They were Jewish. Jewish in the sense that they were circumcised. They held to circumcision. There were many Jewish people in, on the island of Crete, by the way, at this time. Um, historians point to that, that there was a huge Jewish population there. But two, it could also mean, the circumcision party could also mean a particular group of Jewish people. A particular group of Jewish people that we meet in Galatians, if we read Paul's letter to the Galatians. They were Jewish people who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That is, they had become Christians. They had become followers of Christ as the Messiah. But they also continued to hold on to Jewish practices, which Paul says is fine. But the problem was that they believed that all non-Jews, in order to follow Jesus, must also be circumcised. And all non-Jews, in order to follow Jesus, must follow Jewish ceremonial laws. In other words, in order to become a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, one had to functionally become Jewish, is what they taught. And Paul comes down very hard on, on those folks and those errors in the letter to the Galatians. This could have been a similar group here in Crete. We're not sure, but it could be a similar group teaching similar things here in Crete. Like I said, we can't know for sure. We can't know for sure exactly what lies they were teaching. The most detail we get about the lies they were teaching, though, is in verse 14. They were teaching Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Jewish myths. Remember, Paul himself was a Jewish man, right? So he's not trashing Jewish tradition here. He's not trashing Jewish people here. Uh, Paul's scriptures that he grew up reading were Jewish scriptures. Uh, Paul's Messiah and Savior was a Jewish Messiah, Messiah Savior. So Paul's not slamming these people for being Jewish. He's slamming them for teaching myths. Myths. Ideas that might sound attractive, 
and interesting, but they're not true. And he comes down on them hard for teaching instructions, commands that did not line up with the truth of the gospel. In fact, he says, he says these people, according to Paul, they had turned away from the truth and they were abandoning the gospel and they were teaching others ideas that did not align with the gospel. That was the problem. It's, pop- it's possible to say, we are Christians. I am a follower of Jesus. We believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet at the same time, we may espouse beliefs that don't align with that declaration, that don't align with that truth. This has happened historically in the church over the centuries. I'll give you one historical example from the United States. For centuries here in the United States, millions of American people who professed faith in the gospel, who would have stood in congregations like this and recited the Apostles' Creed, they they would have even suffered because of their faith, They were persecuted, and yet all the while, at the same time, they were buying and selling enslaved people who they believed they had the right to enslave by nature of their race. Isn't that interesting? Did they not believe the gospel? Did none of them believe the gospel? And yet they were able to live, on the one hand, declaring faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then hold on to this deeply held practice It was 100% in conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, after many fought to outlaw that practice of chattel slavery, still, many who were gospel-believing Christians, who professed faith in Christ, still many Americans, those same Americans, continued to espouse a a deep-seated belief in the supremacy of white people, and they fought to keep schools and churches segregated. That's just one example, and we can call out many others. It's an example to point to the fact that we can, in mass, believe the truth and still operate on the basis of lies. That should scare us, I think. It scares me. And we cannot be proud, of, we can't be so proud to believe and to think that that sort of thing can't happen now. That, that somehow there aren't other versions of that kind of dissonance still existing in the church now. It would be wiser to ask ourselves, what kinds of lies are we prone to? Because <laughs> maybe we're not prone to that lie. Maybe I'm not prone to the lie of, 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 of uh, legitimizing chattel slavery or to the lie of white supremacy, but, but what lies am I prone to? We can think of that In terms of the church in the United States, what lies is the church in the U.S. prone to? We can think in terms of churches in the Westchester area, what kind of lies are we prone to? Or we can bring it home right here, New Hope Fellowship. What kind of lies are we prone to believe? Allow me to suggest a few lies that we might be prone to believe. And as I looked over this list that I wrote, I realized it's a very random list, but it is what it is. I'll read to you some. I think it's accurate. I think these are lies that we might frankly, fall into. Here's one lie. If you believe in God and obey him, he will give you what you want, and you will be relatively comfortable and successful if you just have faith. There's a lie some of us are prone to believe. How about this lie? Your worth as a person is measured by the amount you accomplish and how much you accumulate. 
about this lie. You will be happier and have more peace if you buy more things or if your career gets just a little bit better. Another lie. You better make the most out of this life because it's all there is. Or this lie. You are on your own. There is no one. There is no creator God who cares for you. He doesn't love you. Or this lie. If others reject you, your life will lose meaning. Or if that someone rejects you and doesn't love you the way you want them to, then your life will lose meaning. Or the lie that you're more important than others and your desires matter more than others. Or the lie that the Bible's sexual ethic, that is what the Bible teaches us about sexuality, is outdated and narrow and regressive. Or the lie that pornography is a victimless sin. Or the lie that your identity is determined by your sexual attractions. Or the lie that your gender is not bound to your biological makeup, but is a matter of how you feel. These are all lies. They're all dangerous. And none of them align with the gospel. And they threaten us. They threaten us. The second thing I want us to see from Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, is that lies accord with ungodliness. And the reason I put it that way is because in verse 1 of Titus 1, Paul calls the truth of the gospel, he says that truth, it's the truth that accords with godliness. The truth of the gospel leads to, it aligns with godliness. And we said that godliness means like God. It means like Jesus Believing the truth leads one towards Jesus-y kind of living, towards Jesus-iness in our character and in our lives. But what I'm saying here about lies is quite the opposite, that lies accord with ungodliness. They lead to ungodliness. They align with ungodliness. And we see that play out in Titus chapter 1. Look at verse 10. It says there, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I hope there are no Cretans here. If so, I'm sorry. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So what these people were doing, these liars, these teachers of lies, they were destroying whole households. What was happening is that the lies that they were propagating and that others were hearing and subtly accepting were creating a lot of damage. It was causing ungodliness. Paul, in that list where he says, it's, you know, one of, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are, etc. What he's doing there is he's quoting, quoting a, a Cretan philosopher. Um, some people think it was a, a guy by the name of Epimenides. But remember, we've seen in the past that Crete, this island, had a reputation for being a rough place, treacherous place. And so when Paul, what Paul is saying here is he's saying someone from Crete would describe it this way or did describe it this way. So he's saying something that was apparently common knowledge to the people of Crete. He's not saying everyone on Crete lived this way. 
But Paul seems to say that this describes those Cretan Jewish empty talkers, those deceivers that were poisoning the community with their lies. He says this describes them. And then in verse 16, he describes them this way. He says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Does that sound judgmental to you? Those are harsh words, aren't they? He's saying these people aren't just bad apples. He's saying they, they claim to know God, but they don't know him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They're useless. First of all, how could the Apostle Paul know that these teachers didn't really know God? They said they knew God. Who's Paul to make that judgment and say they claim to know God, but they don't really know him? How can he make that judgment? Well, simply it's by looking at their lives. Because the ungodliness of their lives gave evidence to the fact that they didn't truly believe the gospel. They didn't look at all like Jesus. And so Paul says if they don't look at all like Jesus and they don't live at all like Jesus, why would I call them a follower of Jesus? After all, remember he said in verse 1, truth leads to godliness. But turning away from truth and embracing lies, it leads to ungodliness. As I read this, it made me think about the fact that um, all of us at one point or another have rejected truth and believed lies. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you were not born that way. I wonder if you look at your previous life and maybe you think, Paul sounds like he's describing me. I was something of a liar. Some might have called me an evil beast. Some might have said I was a lazy glutton. Maybe I was sinful in other ways. But as I read that, it made me think that um, if we're realistic about our state, apart from the power of the gospel to transform us, apart from the gospel, we're all we're all Cretans in the bad sense of the word. But God saves Cretans. God saves depraved people. He loves them and he rescues them and he transforms them. Well, it's worth us thinking again how are the lies that we embrace? leading us into ungodliness? Are there lies that we're embracing or maybe subtly accepting? We don't even realize it, but they're leading us into ungodliness. Again, we need to name those lies. We need to identify them, name them, and reject them because, according to Paul, they ruin households. They ruin lives. They ruin not only reputations, they ruin people. Again, this is why we need to identify and name lies as a church, in our homes, in our own lives. We need to confront them directly. And that can be hard to, do, to directly confront lies. It's hard enough to do it in ourselves, isn't it? It may be even harder sometimes to confront lies in others or from others. Because some of us hate conflict. I hate conflict. But we must. Out of love, because lies hurt and lies damage and lies undermine the gospel. Elders 
according to the Apostle Paul, have been given a particular calling to do this as leaders in the church. So pastors are called to rebuke, to confront lies, to defend against lies. They, it's a sober, heavy call. He says, those liars in the church need to be silenced. But this is not solely a responsibility laid on elders. When, when lies seeped into the church in Galatia, Paul called out the congregation for not confronting those lies. He said it's, the, it's the, the leader's job, but it's also the whole congregation's job in a secondary sense to not put up with lies, to name them and reject them. So there's this mutual responsibility here. If you're a leader in your home as a parent, there's a special responsibility on you to guard against the lies that your family is particularly vulnerable to. Parents, we have a responsibility towards those members of the covenant community called our family, our households, to name the lies when we see them and reject them and instruct one another in truth. Notice the Titus and the elders, verse 13, they're called to rebuke these liars sharply. Rebuke them sharply. That means directly, personally, specifically. People are being called out and corrected. Sharply means clear and strong. Why? Because it's for the sake of the church and it's for the sake of this erring person. We're not loving when we don't confront lies. We're not loving people when we don't confront lies. So my brothers, as elders, we're we're called to to conflict at times. And, and, And I know these brothers, none of us embraces that with joy. Conflict is not something that we run towards. But we are called to conflict at times. It's not conflict over our opinions. Well, we can make that mistake. Paul is not calling us to silence those who disagree with us in our opinions. No, it's conflict over truth, the truth of the gospel. It's not even conflict over secondary disputable matters. Paul doesn't say, sharply rebuke those who disagree with you on secondary disputable matters. When he says, silence and rebuke those who are departing from the gospel and leading others to depart from the gospel. In fact, Paul gives us a personal uh, example of this. From Gal- in Galatians 2, some of you might know this little anecdote that the Apostle Paul shares in Galatians 2. It's not up here, but I'll read it to you. You can look along if you'd like in, in your Bibles. Galatians 2, verse 11. Paul is telling a story here about an interaction he had with Peter, another apostle. Peter's going by the name Cephas here. He says, Paul says, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. He sharply rebuked him. Because he stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was eating and associating with, having fellowship with his Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. You see how the lie... So Peter had subtly accepted this lie that I need to change my behavior when these guys were around or else they might reject me, I might lose their approval, and it might mess things up. So I'm going to distance myself from some of these brothers in order to get, and sisters in order to get the approval of these brothers and sisters. And as a result, many other people started doing the same. 
the whole household was affected. The whole church, the whole community was undermined, was, 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 was harmed. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But Paul says, Paul comes off bold in this, in this line. Look, he says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He called him out for his hypocrisy, but why, look at why he said it. He says in verse 14, he did it because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It wasn't because they didn't agree with me. It's not because I'm not a fan of the way they were operating. That's not how I roll, and I don't think they should. It was because they were departing from, their, their behavior was not aligned with the truth that the Apostle Paul knew was the lifeblood of that entire community. And so he calls them out for it. From all what we can tell, the Apostle Peter responded very well and positively to that, at least in the long run. Their relationship was preserved and health in the church was recovered because the Apostle Paul was, able, was willing to name the lie, confront it, and help his brother reject it. Last part of this, and this last thing we'll see. The only right response to lies is the truth. The only right response to lies is the truth. You know, um, as you read this about the situation in Crete, like I said, it's hard to know exactly the, the, the specific dynamics of what was going on there. But I want to propose to you one possible scenario. This is one possible scenario, what was going on in Crete. We said before that Crete was a, a, a really um, treacherous place, lots of immorality, lots of danger. It, it was a dangerous place. It was a crime-ridden place, a place where dishonesty and immorality were kind of normal. It was just kind of part of the culture. It's possible that that kind of worldliness, that kind of immorality was seeping into the church, leading people to live a kind of, kind of live lawlessly, live dishonestly with each other, immorally with each other, take advantage of each other, hurt each other. You see, the, 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 that kind of license which, which, with which the, the culture operated may have been making its way into the church. But then we have the circumcision party steps in. It's possible that the circumcision party wanted to push back some of that lawlessness, push back against some of that license and the, the, the evil that they were seeing seeping in from the culture. And so they tried to do that by establishing more rules, more laws. You Cretan Christians are not living the way you should. Here's how you need to live. And started burdening them with obeying Old Testament Jewish ceremonial laws as if to say, this is what it looks like to be a church. We can't confront license with legalism because they're both lies. It's a lie to believe that we can live any way we want and it doesn't matter, and that we can absorb the practices and ideals of the world and it doesn't matter. It's also a lie to believe that the solution is just to have more rules. <laughs> And that acceptance with God comes by just obeying his rules. Now, the only thing that could correct the lies that were running rampant in Crete 
was the truth of the gospel. Legalism wasn't going to do it. The circumcision party wasn't going to fix it. The only right response to the gospel distorting lies is the truth of the gospel itself, that Christ died to rescue sinners. And as Lord, he calls you to now live like him because you are his. The point here, and I, at the risk of belaboring it, I don't think I made it all that clearly or articulately, but my point is simply this. Don't replace lies with other lies. The only way to respond to a lie is with the truth. We are seeing to some degree in, um, in our culture today, um, maybe, maybe this reflects some of your experiences or experiences of some that, you, that are close to you that you know. <clears throat> but there are many people in our, in our day who have grown disillusioned by the lies that they've seen embraced in parts of the Christian church in America. They look at the Christian church in America and they see consumerism or sexism. They see instances of sexual assault and cover-ups and big ministries. They see evidence of racism in churches and other kinds of sins. And it's very, it's very easy, I think, and natural for someone who, who's in the church to grow very disillusioned with the church when they see all that sin. When they see that the church at large has in many ways believed lies, like the lies of racism or sexism, or the lie that the best way to deal with sexual assault in the church is to cover it up and protect the predators and re-victimize the victims and all that stuff. And so some people, because they've grown so discouraged and so disillusioned by that, walked away from the church. The response by some has been to reject the gospel altogether and to leave the Christian faith and embrace other ways of life and other philosophies. I would suggest to you that that's simply responding to one lie with another lie. But the best way to respond to the lies that we see existing within the church at large or even within our community here is to respond to those lies with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reject those lies, root them out, and reaffirm our commitment to the unchanging truth of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and his imminent return. Rather than abandoning the faith, if you've grown disillusioned with what you've seen in the church in America or in the world, I would encourage you not to abandon the faith, but to name those lies and reaffirm your belief in the truth of the gospel. If you are still wondering whether the gospel is really truth, um, I'm thinking especially some of you who are younger, I'll let you decide whether you're younger or not. I'm thinking, you know, if you're, if you're still trying to, you know, we're talking about truth, and I'm talking about truth as something that, the, the truth of the gospel as fact, and maybe you hear me and you're saying, I'm not so sure the truth of the gospel is fact. I'm not so sure I can believe the truth of the gospel. I want to encourage you. Again, I'm thinking about you young people especially. I want to encourage you to rigorously search for truth, to make it a goal in your life to determine what is really true. Search for truth. One of the worst lies that the enemy has ever convinced us of is that you can't really know what's true. The enemy has tried to convince us that the truth is a matter of perspective, the truth is relative, 
you have your truth, I have mine, I respect your truth, but I have mine and that's okay, and we can operate on different truths. It's a lie. It's a lie. And humanity seems to have been pretty certain of that for a long time, but we seem to be losing our grip on that. It's by finding truth that you will be able to discern how you should live. It's only by discerning what truth is and finding truth that you will know how to best live the years of the life, your life that God's given you on this earth. It's only by discerning what is true that you will know what is the best and the right way for you to live your life. In order for you to know, you must find out what is true. And Jesus, Jesus makes a very bold claim. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he spoke those words to a man named Thomas who was struggling to know what to believe, who's wrestling with what is really true. And he said, look at me and you'll see truth. And so I want to encourage you, if you have yet to embrace the truth of the gospel and you're still wondering whether or not to stake your life on it and whether or not to embrace it and believe it, I want to encourage you to open yourself up to Jesus. Consider what he says to you. Because in him you'll find no lies. I want to end with a, a story, a short story. Some years ago, my wife and some friends and I had the opportunity to attend this event at New York University. Um, it was a speaking uh, event, and a man by the name of Dr. Alvin Plantinga was, was going to be speaking. Alvin Plantinga is a philosopher, well-known, well-respected, brilliant philosopher, also a Christian. And during this talk, he gave various arguments for why he believed in God. Various arguments for the existence of God. Some of those arguments I found convincing. Some of those arguments went way over my head. But overall, it was a really interesting talk. And that evening, I noticed that the, the, the crowd seemed to be made up mostly of uh, graduate students in philosophy. Some were Christians, some were not. Some believed in God, some did not. Some were practiced other religions, some were atheists. It was a mixed group. But during this night, they allowed uh, people in the crowd to send in questions. And so folks sent in all kinds of questions. And at the end of the evening, uh, Dr. Plantinga addressed some of those questions. And many of them were, they seemed to be written by philosophy grad students, I think. You know, they were like, Dr. Plantinga, how do you respond to so-and-so's argument on such and such? And Dr. Plantinga would respond to that. And then someone else would say, Dr. Plantinga, what do you believe about so-and-so's theory of such and such? And again, half of it went over my head. Half of it was interesting and helpful for me, roughly. But then at a certain part in the night, he started reading one question. I recognized that's the question that my wife, Delimar, had sent in. It was a very direct question. She asked, Dr. Plantinga, why do you believe the gospel? And I remember him reading the, hearing the question right to him by the, by the facilitator. And he said, that's a good question. And I said, yes, that's my wife asked that question. But, and, then he, and then he said, he said, well, he said, I'll start here. Initially, the reason I believe the gospel had nothing to do with any of the arguments that I've presented to you tonight. He said, I believe strongly in those arguments. They're not the reason that I believe the gospel. He went on to explain that when he first heard the gospel, he was struck foremost, first and foremost, by its beauty. 
by the, the wondrous attractiveness of the story. The story of a God who created a world that rejected him. And yet motivated by love for this world that he had made, took the form of a man, and he came and he sacrificed himself and endured pain and shame to rescue this world and to reconcile people like us who had hated him and despised him back to himself. And this God promised that one day he would renew all things and restore this world to what it was always meant to be, that injustice and unrighteousness, sadness and crime of every sort would be eradicated, and there would just be joy, and there would be shalom, perfect peace. And he said, when I heard that story, and I heard that I could partake in that story by believing in Jesus Christ, he said, what struck me initially was just, that's a beautiful story. I'd like to believe that's true. And he felt drawn to it, and he opened himself to it. And then he said, being a philosopher, he spent many years subsequently rigorously questioning that story, interrogating his doubts about that story, pressing in on it to see if it really made sense. And he said eventually he came to a place where he said, after all my questions, after all my self-interrogations and questioning of others, and all my reading, and all my philosophizing, I have never found a better explanation for reality than this. I've never found a better explanation for the human condition than this story that captivated me simply with its beauty. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want to encourage you again to look at planting his testimony and recognize that all of his doubts and all of his uncertainties about the gospel were not answered immediately. He did not initially believe because he was reasoned into belief or reasoned himself into belief. He initially believed because he was humbly willing to open himself up to the beauty of who God is and the beauty of what God had done. That was the entry point. He vulnerably opened himself up and said, this is beautiful, and if you are real, God, then I want to be a part of this. And then he started to rigorously pursue truth. He didn't set that beautiful story in the back of his head and say, yeah, maybe I'll think about that on Sundays from time to time if I can make it to church. He started to push in and rigorously pursue, is this real? Is it true? Is it true? And decades later, continues to follow Christ. I wonder if that's similar to some of our testimonies here. I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet believed in the truth of the gospel, that you would simply make yourself vulnerable, open yourself up to the beauty of who God is and the beauty of the story of his redemption, and then rigorously seek to know if it's true. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, you so patiently teach us truth, and we're so stubborn in rejecting it sometimes, or so hesitant to live in the light of it. But we thank you for your patience with us. And we ask that you would reveal to us, whether we've believed in Christ already or not, would you reveal to us afresh the beauty of your gospel story? And would you confirm in us, affirm in us, the reality that this truth is worth staking our lives on. In Jesus' name, amen.